Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, July 16th. We begin with a look at a new Ipsos poll which takes aim at the SERB program, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit. The poll features questions surrounding fraudulent claims and how long Canadians believe the program should continue for. Still on the topic of CERB, we catch up with the Fraser Institute with details on the staggering amount of money the program is providing to young people who live at home with their parents. Estimates released peg the dollar amount to be as much as $11.8 billion. Is government support being provided to Indigenous communities enough during the COVID-19 pandemic? We speak with a law professor on the unique challenges these communities face during the coronavirus crisis. Fatty liver disease is becoming a growing public health concern in Canada. We speak with a top liver specialist from the U of C on the signs you should be aware of. And finally, it's our monthly chat with Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science, Dr. Axel Morenschlager. This time out, Dr. Morenschlager explains the agony of choice when it comes to conservation decisions. 909 on the morning news, a new Ipsos poll done exclusively for Global News found that while most Canadians believe that Canada Emergency Response Benefit, or CERB, has helped prevent financial disaster, there's an increasing concern about fraud and misuse. With more on the poll, we're joined by Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. Good morning to you, Daryl. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being here. There's many facets to this poll, but I think uh, one thing that, that I took from it is Canadians have opinion on the CERB up to this point and, and where it should be going. Did you, uh, you know, um, get a lot of that, that they have uh, strong opinions on CERB? Yeah, they, uh, they really thought it was a great idea uh, when we were in the emergency state. So uh, 86% of us thought or do believe that it did prevent people from going through a lot of financial hardship. But by the same token, they also believe that the, that the name of the program with emergency in there is really what it was for. It was for an emergency. So now that we're moving back into more of a, a situation in which people can return to work, uh, their expectation is that people are going to do that and that maybe uh, the CERB is a bit, a bit of a disincentive for that happening. So what were some of the numbers, Daryl, in terms of those who believe we should continue with it and those that believe we should discontinue the program? Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically split. There's about half of us who think that we should continue and then half of us think that uh, as long as unemployment is high that we should con- continue with it. I wouldn't interpret that as specifically being about CERB. I, I think that's more to do with people thinking that we, d- we shouldn't just leave people high and dry, that there should be at least some form of assistance for people who continue to be unemployed. But the, the biggest thing that we're finding is that people do believe that it is creating a bit of a disincentive for people going back to work. So uh, almost three-quarters of us say that uh, uh, they do believe that there are people who shouldn't be going back to work who aren't because they're on, uh, they're on the program. Was everybody on the same page across the nation or regionally? Did people have different opinions on when we should be discontinuing, sir? Yeah, it's not so much regional as much as it is generational. So when you take a look at who the people are that are most supportive of CERB continuing versus the people who feel that it should be discontinued, it tends to people be people who are in more precarious employment situations. So people who are younger, people who uh, have less formal education, uh, people who, who have lower incomes, uh, those are the people who have the strongest belief uh, that the, the program should continue. And then the people who think that it should be stopped are actually the opposite of that. Daryl, did you ask people overall, you know, Canadians, what they felt about the program? Was it good? Did it avert financial disaster? Or is it creating exactly that? 
No, actually, people were very supportive of the program. And 86% said that it, it was the, the right thing to do at the time, that it averted a lot of financial disaster. But now that, as I said, as we're moving along, there's this expectation that as, as we move out of the emergency, that we're going to move on to something else, that people are going to go back to work, or that um, uh, other programs are going to be put in place for people who might have some longer-term uh, issues to deal with. And uh, they do believe that the current program uh, was a, a fair amount of potential for fraud to be taking place as a result of it. So in the in the mid-60s saying uh, to us that uh, that they do believe that the, that there was, was fraud in the program. Yeah, that was something that, you know, we've heard about in the past uh, several weeks, if not a couple months, this fear. And uh, in fact, uh, we're talking about, you know, perhaps fining some of these people or uh, giving them some kind of a penalty. And that enters into the survey as well, what Canadians think of that. Yeah, 85% saying that if somebody did defraud the program, they should be fined. So, um, uh, there was an understanding that the government needed to move fast in order to get this in place, which meant that they didn't spend a lot of time screening people. So people basically kind of get that. But as the program has moved on, there's an expectation that people are going to move back to work. And people who did take the money um, and when they didn't need it or inappropriately, there's an expectation that uh, that they should be uh, somehow, uh, you know, I wouldn't say punished is not necessarily the right word for it, but there should be some accountability for that. I find it funny that only 85% of people think that those who may have committed some sort of fraud should... Yeah, they're 15 should, are fine with it. Because <laughs> they're the ones well, maybe perhaps see, doing it. I don't know. <laughs> well, you can see the reasoning. I mean, the, their their view might be that these are desperate times. and Sometimes people have to, you know, do desperate things to survive. So, I mean, there, there, there probably is, uh, if, if we went deeper with those folks, they would come up with something. But I can tell you, Getting 85% of Canadians to agree on anything is next to impossible. <laughs> That's fair. So, That's uh, a fair point. All of these numbers that I'm quoting to you are like record highs for anything, wow. first in terms of the success of the program, but also in terms of the fairly unanimous view that it's now time to move back. Did you ask move, people move about how we pay for it, Daryl, and what their thoughts on that were? Yeah, we, we did. Uh, and uh, we don't really have a lot of tolerance for taxes. That's what comes out of this, of course, unless it's somebody else paying it, like, say, for example, businesses. So we do have tolerance for business taxes, not for an increase in personal taxes to pay for it. What we most want government to do is look at their own spending and see if there's some things that they can make in terms of uh, uh, of changes there. So uh, this is not really, I would say, much different than you would find on anything that you ask Canadians about public spending. They always think that uh, uh, the government's probably uh, got some money rattling around in some file cabinets or other places uh, that, uh, that, that they shouldn't have and they should be doing it more efficiently and that it's okay for other people to pay taxes but not me. Uh, so I don't think that we've really joined a realistic conversation yet with Canadians on how we're going to pay for all the spending that took place during this uh, emergency. Well, the pandemic and CERB have uh, you changed it. Well, everything, it seems to be all corners of uh, society and our lives. And it also uh, reopened the conversation about something we've talked about here and there, universal income. And that's something that people have an opinion uh, about tied to the CERB and, and what we've gone through. Yeah, 58% of us say that um, it's something that's worth considering. And uh, I wrote a, an opinion piece in uh, for, for Global which I talked about why that is. And the reason is because people have actually now experienced a program that is a universal, at least temporary universal income support program that they believe has actually worked. So now there's an example of, uh, of um, a program of this nature that can be pointed to as uh, something that we could somehow replicate for certain groups of the population. So I, I expect that as we move into the election campaign, 
which could come at any time, but probably is most likely next spring, that um, that this will be part of some political party's program because they now, as I said before, have an example in which it worked. Mm-hmm. There's lots of talk about that for sure, Daryl. Did you break it down to you know age groups of Canadians who were behind this basic universal income? Yeah, it is, again, the people who are in the most precarious employment situations, people who are younger, people who are, uh, have less formal education, people who have lower incomes, people who are probably going to be the beneficiaries of the program. And then there's the, the people who are on the other side of it who are worried about how much this is going to cost them. There's also a moral element to it as well. We didn't get into this on the survey, but I've certainly seen this in other surveys on universal uh, uh, income. The idea that people would be working for nothing, or getting paid for nothing is is a hump that the the public has to get over. Uh, they have to understand why that's a good idea and why it would be in their interest for them to continue working if somebody else was doing something else. So there's there's a that while there's I would say some initial interest based on what we saw with Curb that it would be a pretty hotly debated subject among Canadians. Good stuff. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Daryl. My sincere pleasure. Thanks for having me on. That was Daryl Bricker, Ipsos CEO. At 6.43 on your Thursday morning, young people living at home with their parents in households with at least $100,000 of income are eligible for as much as $11.8 billion in CERB payments. That's according to a new study released today by the Fraser Institute. Joining us now is Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute. Good morning, Jason. Morning, thank you. Thanks for joining us because that just seems outrageous, doesn't it? What are we seeing and what did you find when you looked at the numbers of of who's getting CERB and who really should be deserving of CERB? Sure. I mean, part of our concern started when uh, the federal government early on said that it would not use the EI system to distribute benefits, which, I mean, that's a longstanding system, um, you know, well-established process, um, a bureaucracy that understands the program. And instead, they were going to create an entirely new program within two weeks, which, as any person, particularly business people, would understand, or, you know, even empo- employees would understand, it takes a lot of effort to create new programs or new new products and, and, and such. So our concern was the degree to which these programs were going to be targeted or have real problems. And unfortunately, what we're seeing consistently when we look at programs in detail is that they're not well targeted. Um, And so the group that we wanted to look at were young people deemed dependent. So that means they're living with parents and they are not the primary earner in their family. Um, And then we wanted to look at those who were eligible for CERB, so they had to make $5,000 of income. But we wanted to make sure that the CERB benefits they would be now getting would be higher than the income they would have received when they were working. Um, And that's a key part of what we're looking at. So in other words, these are young people living at home who are actually better off under CERB than they were when they were working part-time. Um, and that number is $8.2 billion. The, the potential cost to Canadians for that group of young people uh, is 8.2. If you add in a second group that we looked at, and those are people with earnings between 12000 and 24000 so their average monthly income would at the very least not go down, and the probability is it would go up to some degree. Uh, then you get a total number of uh, 11.8 uh, billion. And again, this is just for CERB. This does not look at the uh, parallel program for young people who don't qualify for CERB or the new program that was just announced a few weeks ago for young people who are volunteering. So there is a real concern on our part that 
uh, you know, at a time when the federal deficit is going to be $350 billion, roughly, um, we are spending quite a bit of money to send uh, support to people where the need is at least questionable. So, Jason, just to underscore here, this is uh, that these these kids essentially aren't doing anything wrong. We can't blame them, but it's a, a, a an issue with the system. Period. No, absolutely not. I mean, the, these are families and individuals who are playing by the rules, and when the rules are set up in a haphazard way, um, where expediency and convenience is more important than prudent use of public funds then people respond to those incentives. And, and I would say there's, they're not doing anything wrong, and it would be inappropriate for the federal government to change course or change their mind and try to retroactively fix this problem. But it is to underscore that we are spending a considerable amount of money at a time when the deficit is at historic levels, and some of that money is just not well targeted. And, and sorry, we, we've also seen this with the seniors benefit that was announced about a month and a half ago. Uh, we've seen this with uh, two parallel programs aimed at young people. Um, and so, again, our concern is there, there just does not seem to be a lot of prudence um, being displayed in Ottawa when it comes to spending public money right now. Um, expediency seems to be the rule of the day. Now, to be fair, the government did need to get the money out quickly. But as you're saying, now we're a few months into this. Maybe there you know, should have been, and, and if not before, now a time to look at it and say, okay, well, we need to stop this particular payment or, or these payments then. Well, I understand that to some degree, except that I have to believe there was someone in the room who said, okay, well, we want to do serve benefits, but why not use the EI system that's already in place? Why not actually say that you're not going to be eligible for CERB if you are in a household that makes $200,000 a year or two hundred fifty, or some level of income where we would say this is not a household in need relative to households of 50000 or 35000 where both parents have lost their uh, employment mm-hmm. and who need more than what we're doing right now. Um, I, I just have to believe, given the quality of our bureaucracy, particularly our federal Department of Finance, that this was raised. And I think, unfortunately, we have a federal government that has consistently displayed over five years a lack of prudence when it comes to spending public monies. Jason, thanks for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you. As Jason Clemens, Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute. Coming up on 6.09 on your Thursday morning, and with the economy reopening and employees returning to physical workplaces, a lot of businesses are looking to experts for guidance on how to ensure the health and safety of their employees during this transition. Enter Calgary-based telemedicine provider Wello and their new online assessment tool called Return to Workplace. With all the details, we're joined this morning by President and CRO of Wello, Lori Castleman. Hi, Lori. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you can you break it down a little bit for us and, and tell us what this program is and how it will work for employers as they, they you know think about at this point, how do we bring people back into the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the tool that we've launched really works in conjunction with our telemedicine services, which are available to employees uh, and they're purchased through uh, employer benefits. Uh, and effectively, the tool just gives employees a step-by-step questionnaire so they can fill it out on their mobile device daily in many cases. It asks them a series of questions just to understand if they have any risk in terms of symptoms or if they have traveled or been exposed to COVID-19. 
And then based on the results, they either receive an approval to return into the physical workplace, or if they are not eligible to return, they have the opportunity to reach into our clinical staff. And again, through a virtual consult, can get guidance on next steps. So it's multi-pronged, if I'm hearing correctly, Lori, in the sense that, you know, if you're not feeling well, if you're running a temperature or have a sore throat, it's not just left there, you can't come to work, there's a follow-through. Absolutely. And I think that's really the critical component that we were looking to provide support around. That is our core focus as a Canadian telemedicine provider, is to provide that virtual support and clinical guidance to employees. And so, you know, without that next step of clinical guidance, the employees left, you know, probably in a situation where they're feeling concerned and not quite sure what to do or how to resolve the scenario. And so, you know, as I said, I think that's the really key piece here is that you've got that connection and an an understandable, simple next step. So, Lori, then is this a daily thing that employees would do or are we talking about sort of broad based bringing everybody back to the workplace sort of for the first time? Yeah, it really depends on the employer and the policies they're putting in place for their employees. So as an example, in a retail environment, you may have employees who are working different shifts. And so it wouldn't be daily. Uh, In some scenarios where employers are bringing, you know, a a percentage of their workforce back and they're going to be in the physical workplace every day again, it would be a daily screen. What sort of demand is there for something like this, Lori? Are you hearing from businesses interested and and looking for some sort of a solution? How's how's it been? Yeah, absolutely. We we actually built the tool in response to client requests. So we had clients who were looking for a solution because they were really trying to figure it out and, you know, navigating the change day to day. And if you've been into a store, for example, recently, you know, you've seen any number of different scenarios when you're at the door and you're looking to enter the store. In some cases... You know, you were required to wear a mask in the past few months. In others, you were not. Uh, In some cases, you were asked a series of questions and you could see someone documenting or not. So there's been a lot of variability. uh, And we've seen early demand uh, from our existing clients because they were looking to have a solution that could be consistent across the country and meet those provincial requirements. So the, the interest has been very significant. Well, and good on you. Wello is Calgary-based, so local company doing great. But obviously, because this is online, you can focus right across the country, I'm assuming. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really key for us. So you can actually complete the tool, uh, you know, on your laptop or desktop, or you can complete it on a mobile device, which, you know, it's it's pretty critical for uh, most individuals today who are, you know, remote in many cases. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, all across the country as well. You know, from a broad perspective, let's look at Wello and uh, telemedicine provider. Uh, this is something that, you know, kind of ahead of its time, and then along comes COVID. Talk about that transition, because it seems like you guys have been doing this uh, to, a, to a large extent before the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. The, so COVID has been, uh, COVID-19 has been, uh, created a dramatic increase in both you know, the need for virtual care services, but also the adoption rate. So significant increase over the last four to five months in the use of, uh, you know, technology to deliver healthcare in Canada. Uh, 91% of individuals who have used virtual care have experienced very positive, uh, have demonstrated very positive satisfaction rates 
um, and would indicate that they would use virtual care again. So it's been uh, a really compelling time in terms of um, something that had been slowly gaining traction, particularly here in Canada, um, you know, with the release of billing codes and whatnot over the last few months. As I said, those adoption rates, both in employer setting, but also for many of our, um, you know, our uh, primary care physicians as individuals, that adoption has increased as well, really because we had to, right? And so mm-hmm. from our perspective, it's incredibly positive. So, Lori, this return to workplace um, concept, is this this is for a company must get involved in this, right? If there's an individual out there, this is not going to benefit them. This is something that a company needs to put in place for all of its employees. Yeah, so there's there's many different models available. And as I said, you know, many individual practitioners have adopted technology as well to deliver healthcare. Our model is selling into employers. So we're a business-to-business uh, product offering. The employer purchases our services as part of their employee benefits package, and then employees have access. Can it be customized, Laura? You, you, you mentioned that you know you are there for the employers and the businesses, but for example, I would think that if, if it's a, a grocery store, that would be different than an accounting firm with, you know, say, 20 employees sitting at, at uh, different corners of a building. Yeah, it's a great point. There are definitely customizations available, and we handle those typically on a case-by-case basis, um, and it really depends on the employer's needs. But the beauty with technology is, you know, there's lots of applicability across different scenarios. And sometimes, you know, you require very little customization to be able to support the unique needs of a particular workplace, you know, if if the technology is there and in place. You use the word unique. Is this a unique platform for, you know, Canada right now? Are there other companies doing this or is this sort of, you know, you guys have, have jumped on the bandwagon getting out there first? So as far as uh, the return to workplace services in conjunction with the telemedicine platform, we are unique in Canada. Um, You know, we certainly do expect that there will be other providers given the need is is pretty significant, but we're really pleased to be early to market with this offering. And as I said, it's really largely because our clients were looking for a solution and we were able to respond. Smart. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time this morning, Lori. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. That is Lori Castleman, president and CRO of Wello and Wello Virtual Healthcare. You can find them online at wello.ca. 8.11 on the morning news. Canada's Indigenous leaders are concerned that the federal government's support to help First Nations, Inuit and Métis people deal with the impacts of COVID-19 may not be sufficient. To dive into this topic, uh, we are joined by Assistant Professor, Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, Anne Levesque. Good morning to you, Anne. Good morning. To kick things off, how are uh, Canada's Indigenous communities doing overall at holding off the virus? Well, thanks to efforts and affirmations of their sovereignty on their land, they've been uh, largely, the numbers are, are, I guess, proportionate and reflective of what's going on in uh, elsewhere in the, uh, in the country. But I would say that uh, it has nothing to do with the efforts um, made by the federal government and everything to do with how they've affirmed their sovereignty and uh, taken measures uh, by their own initiative to, to, to protect uh, their people. Can you explain that a little bit, Anne, about what the Indigenous communities are doing for themselves at this point then? 
Well, we've seen throughout the country, you know, complete lockdowns, um, you know, preventing people from entering and leaving the communities. We've also seen uh, very strict curfews imposed by communities. And this is these strict ne- uh, measures are necessary because, um, you know, the, the guidelines that off reserve we're following as uh, non Indigenous Canadians uh, generally don't work on reserves. Um, things like hand washing, for example, is difficult when. Um, uh, you don't have water that can is is drinkable or safe to drink, um, you know. So the the water advisories when there's a boil water advisory, um, the 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 measures of of washing your hands regularly um, can even be dangerous for children and and babies, for example. So we can assume that you believe that the federal government is not giving uh, our indigenous people the support they need during the pandemic. What has to change? Well. For the first part, I think that as a basic measure, we need the funding uh, given to Indigenous uh, peoples in Canada to be at least reflective of their proportion in Canadian politi- uh, in, in Canadian uh, of the Canadian po- population. Right now, we're seeing that they're actually getting less than uh, is a, is provided off reserve. So that's just unfair. Um, but the, the funding and the measures also need to take into account the dire situations that we're seeing, especially on reserves, where there are boiled water advisory, there are housing crises, so social distancing is in, impossible. So um, what we've argued, um, we, me and uh, Professor Thériault at the University of Ottawa, is that if, if there's going to be a really a comprehensive and, and sustainable uh, strategy to prevent COVID on the long term on reserves, we need to address these root causes that make First Nations people uh, more vulnerable to risks of COVID and other health crises. And these dire situations on many reserves across our country, they're not a new thing. So do you think that having this pandemic affecting, you know, the Indigenous communities as well as everybody in the country, will this help perhaps bring some more attention to the problems and the the lack in these places that that maybe helps helps them moving forward well i've been litigating against the government of canada for over 10 years to try to um, urge the government to provide equal services to first nations people on reserves and the government has consistently argued that you know rolling out these programs providing funding it takes time it's complicated And if there's one thing we've learned in the pandemic is that governments can respond quickly and swiftly Mm -hmm. when um, things are set as a policy objective. So, again, we see that First Nations people are at risk. We see the the foreseeable consequences of enacting. So if it's set as a priority, I think that we've learned that the government can dish out large amount of money very quickly. Uh, so that's something we've learned from the pandemic. So now, again, First Nations people are demanding equality. They're demanding that the root causes of their the structural risks that they face during uh, this pandemic be addressed. And if it's not set as a, po- a policy objective, then the, 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 the consequences are very predictable. And it, again, it, it will have foreseeable and perhaps fatal consequences on First Nations people. So so earlier, well, about six weeks back, end of May, it was announced that, uh, you know, uh, the feds were giving $650 million in COVID aid uh, to Indigenous communities. Has that been received? Is, is that money uh, uh, being used to, to, to make some changes at this point? 
Yeah, the, the, the money has been distributed, but it's not proportionate to even the First Nations population in Canada and the Indigenous population. It represents less than 1% of the money spent since uh, in the pandemic uh, crisis um, when Indigenous peoples are more than 5%. So it's not even proportionate to their actual uh, population. Um, and because the need is greater um, in Canadian law, it's recognized that when there's a greater need, you need to sometimes give more. And I would argue that any measure that doesn't take into account the context, um, so, you know, the boil water advisories, the, the lack of housing on reserve uh, are discriminatory and will be ineffective. Thank you so much for sharing this information with us, Anne. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Anne Levesque, Assistant Prof, Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa. 7.49 on the morning news. Doctors are warning that soaring rates of a common but often undetected liver disease could become an enormous burden on Canadian health care over the next decade if there is not more awareness. We're joined by Dr. Mark Swain, a University of Calgary liver specialist who has the details. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. Dr. Swain, you know, fatty liver, it's, it's, it's not new. It's something that's been documented for, for decades, if you will. Uh, but I'm wondering why now it could become a, a burden, why it could be increasing in our society. Well, I think there's there's two things. First of all, I think I believe that it, it, it's always been quite prevalent, and uh, and uh, I think that people just really knew it was there, but didn't really appreciate that it could cause liver injury. That's part of it. And the second thing is is that as as our as as our our rates of obesity and diabetes increase, which are the main drivers of fatty liver disease, uh, then uh, then the incidence of fatty liver disease, of course, goes uh, uh, goes high in parallel with those. Can you explain, doctor, what fatty liver disease is, and is there? Can you can you fix it, or is it there and and means you know potential dangers down the road? Yeah, so uh, so fatty liver disease is really, I, I mean, so the cells in the liver are basically like little balloons, and they get, and in fatty liver disease they get filled up with fat, and uh, and so. In most people, that fat just sits there like fat might sit in our arm if we were to gain weight, and then we lose weight, it goes away. It doesn't actually hurt our muscle in our arm. And for most people, it doesn't hurt their, their liver. But there are, there's a proportion, about 2 to 3% of the population, that, that uh, um, when they get fat in the liver, for some reason, it starts to damage their liver, and, uh, and, then it, and then they get an inflammation of their liver, and that's called NASH. And when they get NASH, then they can start to, to get, develop scarring, and that scarring can progress on to cirrhosis. Just like when people think of alcoholic cirrhosis, it's really the same endpoint, which is lots of scarring in the liver, so the liver becomes lumpy, bumpy. Wow, Doctor Swain, I'm sure you remember back in about 1998 when I met with you, and I do. Uh, you no, you don't. <laughs> you, you diagnosed me with fatty liver back then. You uh, instructed me the best, uh, you know, steps for my diet. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we did a blood test uh, weeks later, and uh, you said it's, your enzymes are back in line. So for me, it was diet. Is is that the same with 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 most of these cases that people can, you know, make lifestyle changes? Yeah, so that's a very good point. I think that that it's really about awareness. So if people are aware that this is a potential risk, and then and then they make lifestyle changes, especially early on, it's completely reversible. And uh, the issue becomes that uh, because it is a silent thing, people don't have symptoms. So if they don't have something that tells them that they have it, so whether it's a blood test or an ultrasound or something, then they have no idea that they have fatty liver, and they and they go along, and so they don't make those changes. And then and if they come in and they have cirrhosis already, it's extremely hard. Then to to uh, deal with it with lifestyle alone. 
So, doctor, how do you know if you you don't if you don't know you have it, you wouldn't go and ask for the blood test or the ultrasound. So, how how is it found? And and then if you don't change, what can happen down the road? Well, that's a, that's a great question. I I, I think that. Uh, as as people gain weight, so certainly as the, what's, the, what's called a BMI or body mass index, which is really a ratio of height and weight, once that gets above sort of 30, then a, a significant proportion, most people are going to have fatty liver. And, uh, and also with people that have diabetes, especially type 2 diabetes, which is the one that's associated with as we get older and gain weight, um, but then uh, then those people have a high chance of having fatty liver too. So it's suspicion of the, uh, in those people. And then the the usual key is really uh, abnormal liver tests. Although you don't have to have abnormal liver tests to have fatty liver disease, and probably half half don't actually. Mm. Thank you very so, much. Oh, yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and also if you have an ultrasound for another reason, often traditionally it would a fatty liver would be, would be shown, but it's so common that often no one even comments on it. So no. so so it's a matter of then being aware that that might be a risk for liver disease and cardiovascular disease, and then making those lifestyle uh, changes. Right. Yeah, perhaps being proactive with yep. your own health is exactly. a good idea. Thank you yep. so much for your time, Dr. Swain. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Have a great day. This is Dr. Mark Swain, a University of Calgary liver specialist. And every week, or every month, I should say, we join the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science to discuss all the great conservation work that our zoo is involved with around the world. To talk about the translation of a saying that he loves, I'm pretty sure Andrew butchered it. I don't know. We're joined this morning by Dr. Axel Morenschlager, who is the Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. Good morning, Axel. Good morning. Okay, I'm I want to try. Can I try again? Uh, Axel, listen to this. Are you ready? Okay, Okay, go You tell me what I'm doing wrong here, ready? All of it? Yeah, I'm going to... It's not that long. Okay, go. Word die wall hat, hat die qual. (laughs) Oh, Axel. That's absolutely perfect. Oh, snap! Axel. How would you say it? Okay, not quite. Um, Wer die Wahl hat, hat die qual. (laughs) So close, Andy, so close. Okay, Axel, it sounds much more exotic when you say it. What does it mean? Translate for us. Yeah, it basically means they, they who have the choice have the agony. And uh, I really like it. I mean, so obviously you can tell that, you know, English isn't even my first language. So um, having grown up in Germany, there's lots of these nice sayings that I grew up with. And I, I always remember this one because one of the things is in, in life, we all want uh, to be able to make choices and have the freedom to make choices, right? But sometimes when you actually have the freedom to make choices, it can be like agonizing, mm-hmm. right? And we all make a ton of choices, I think, every day. Um, I don't know if you guys ever have trouble making choices. Often. <laughs> Often. Yes? Okay. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's how I feel. I mean, if I go to a restaurant and I'm staring at the menu, you know, I can get down to two or three, and then I'm like, oh, my God, which, what, am, <laughs> what's, what if it's terrible? What if I make the wrong decision? You know, all that kind of thing. But even, even for us, uh, or for many Calgarians, as we go into the summer months, you might... You know, you might think about how you spend your time. Like, even if you have some time off, how do you spend that free time? And and how do you make those decisions based on what, right? Sometimes we just do it on a gut feel or or, or just based on, you know, the spur of the moment. But sometimes, actually, we do it in a much more strategic way, whether we know it or not. And um, I think in general, as I just sort of reflect on life and then, you know, in broader ways in conservation, we really make important choices primarily around how we spend our time and our money too. Time and money are among the most precious things that we have to give, no matter how much or how little we have, right? Um, and 
a lot of what we do is ultimately connected to the things that we value the most. And that's going to be different for every person True. or even every organization, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if you and Andrew always choose the same thing because you're perfectly aligned on everything. <laughs> no. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. an, the, the individual comes out uh, even in a group setting. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and one thing that's interesting, too, is we don't just make decisions about uh, what we care about, like right now, like what menu item am, am I going to choose? But some of the decisions we make actually affect things or are about things that are 10 or 20 years away, right? True. So for example, like people might care about their retirement or, or what um, things will be like for their children or grandchildren or in general what they want this world to be and how they can have an influence on that. And so, does, does that relate to your world of conservation then as well? Yeah, so much because... In conservation, we make decisions all the time, and we fundamentally are caring about uh, some deep values that we have. And those values are basically about that we believe that, that species and ecosystems deserve to exist, that they're uh, for a couple different reasons. One, because you know plants and animals have a, a place in this world just as much as we do. And the other one is actually that as humans, they better exist because without the fabric of nature, we can't be here, right? And so... Um, the challenge is that there's about a million species that are currently at risk. And that means, you know, there's a lot of trouble on the horizon. We need to choose really carefully how we engage in that. And actually, they're in trouble for a reason. Often it's things that are really complicated or big factors or big effects. And so just like you think about a patient in the emergency room or somebody who might be chronically sick, it's not going to be like an instant magic solution. Often you don't even know what the problem is yet. So it's about time as well. It's about being able to figure things out and being able to help those things in the long term, right? So with limited resources, uh, limited uh, cash and time, as you mentioned, it's almost like playing God, choosing which sectors of uh, the the natural world uh, we can aid. Is that is that the agony you speak of? Wow, that's that's pretty deep, and and uh, I think I think it, it speaks to, like you say, that just the, the depth and the importance of some of those decisions, and and it is agonizing in this way. We actually help, we actually train people internationally to in how to resolve these things through a formal process called structured, structured decision making. It's actually used in, in business as much as we're basically bringing it to conservation too. It's just a way of formally assessing what is it you really care about, what is possible to achieve, and how can you make trade-offs to achieve it, okay? And so um, for us in, in conservation, the wonderful dilemma now is because we have, you know, we work on many endangered species, as you know, in Canada to, to save them. And we work actually on, on many internationally, too, is that more and more people are coming to us asking us to help, you know, and more species need our help. So ultimately, um, there's two things we really, really care about. One is from a Canadian perspective, we care about species not going extinct in this country, right? Because they're part of our heritage mm-hmm. and the world and around us and the fabric that we all depend on. But of course, there are species that people love in faraway places, lions or rhinos or whatever, you know, that aren't Canadian, but that also might go extinct. And so we think about other species that go um, that might go extinct. So there's a bunch of fundamental questions that we really grapple with 
<clears throat> one is uh, what species need our help and what is potentially our ability to save them? How long would it take to achieve such benefit? And then, like you said, Andrew, like what, what would it cost? And who would actually help fund such work or partner with us to work together over the duration, like the, the long haul of saving these species? And then finally, because, of course, we only have so much capacity, every situation that we take on, every large or small animal or plant or anything like that has to be a model that can be extrapolated. So if we figure out an innovation to save something like here in Canada or somewhere in Africa, how can we escalate that to be kind of the new solution for hundreds of thousands of other species, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we've developed some really novel methods like for conservationists in general. But, um, but in general, it just speaks to the kinds of decisions that we make every day. And, and you do it in your world. I mean, huge questions, massive consequences. And I know the, the conservation team at the Calgary Zoo is renowned worldwide. So thank you for, for sharing a little bit about that with us, for what, what it's like in the background of it all, Dr. Axel. Yeah, and, and uh, just fundamentally what I wanted to say there is a big thank you because, because the work that we do and the kinds of things we can do to help more species all around us or all around the world because of all this, depends on the partners we have and the supporters that we have. And those supporters can even just be all those that come to the zoo to support us there or our donors or our partners. And in such a way, that's how we all support wildlife conservation. And we thank everybody for it. Thank you to them. Thank you to you. Appreciate your time. That's Dr. Axel Morenschlager, Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science.